Welcome to the Stanley Street Social Podcast presented by MAP. My name's Alex Clements and if you haven't already, make sure you check out MAP's collaboration with the sunglass brand 100%. Uh, they've got some very sharp shades on their website now at map.cc. Today on the podcast, we caught up with Scott Sunderland, the race director of the Cadell Evans Great Ocean Road Race, which was hosted last weekend, and also the race director of the Flanders Classics. He gives us an insight into how he got into directing, his role in beginning the Cadell Evans Great Ocean Road Race to where it is today, uh, the evolution of the race from its initial celebration of Cadell's career to the current now world tour status of both the men's and women's event, and a little bit on the upcoming classic season and what it's like to be the race director of the Tour of Flanders. We hope you enjoy the podcast. How about how how Flanders Classic start? Will you start with that, or you want to start first, Cadell? No. What about how race directing started? Well, race directing uh, started while I was still actually a, a sports director. Mm. Um, I started doing a few little charity things and stuff, and people sort which of which was it Sky or. Uh, yeah, CCC. CCC. CSC, sorry. Not CCC. CSC. So back in the CSC days, um, you know, helped out with a few little charity things, which was, you know, just ad hoc and helping out mates and that. And because um, you know, more or less know the role of a, of a race director in that way, but also from being a, a sports director, you sort of have some uh, concept of how to get things going and, and running like that, managing 30 odd riders uh, at any one time. So, yeah. Just sort of interest sort of went that direction in, in events and I think as a kid or as I got older as a rider I could always see where the gaps were I was a rider of, of races and organisers and I always had this aspiration of building the grafting role and uh, 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 Goulburn to Sydney and all these types of events to, to become mainstream where we can get all the big internationals out here uh, and, that, and then of course Tour de Nunda come along so that was pretty exciting and I just think I felt that you know cycling in, in Australia just needed something more. So, um, from an organisational perspective, and that's sort of where my interest was in, in uh, becoming the race director. And then the rest sort of just happened. To be honest, it happened uh, without me really planning it or without me looking for it. Mm. So, that your first job? Um, my first job, I would say, officially would have been with the NRS um, series. So. Uh, it would have been there with Cycling Australia, so I brought in to to lead and manage those races, um, and that was in 2012. Mm. Um, so started with the NRS and we're looking at how we could set up a better structure and framework around that, and that was fun. So I did that for 12 and 13, and then I walk, uh, was also invited in to do the national championships for Cycling Australia, uh, race director role in that, and, and uh, just trying to take the next level, you know, of, of the road nats. Um, just trying to run it a bit smoother and, and more professional and in line with what the expectations are for, for such a big event with pro riders and and, uh, and what the UCI is looking at. How important was that race experience? Um, I think my hands-on race experience as, as a cyclist but also as a sports director. Um, I mean, for every race you go to, you see little things, you know, uh, and I think uh, where, where they can be improved. I mean, always uh, as a race organiser, budget is, is a major thing. It's the same as any yeah. <laughs> anything in the world, you know, whether it's a team or or, or federation or uh, or an organisation running event. Uh, it comes down to budget because that equals resource, and the more resource you have, the 
uh, definitely the, the more things you can do around it. But um, no, it was it was a good training curve, uh, learning curve, and um, I, I think it's just bringing those two elements to uh, then gaining my experience within um, race organising. Um, yeah, put me in a good position to have a, a holistic view of it to what everybody's needs and, and necessities are um, to have a successful but most importantly a safe event for riders and, and public. Was there still a steep learning curve though? You know how it's kind of like you, you, as a rider you see it, as a sports director you see it the same as when you really attack anything and then you actually get, get your hands dirty and get in there and sometimes it can be a bit, oh geez, there is a lot to this. Yeah, the, the one thing... Um, I think was was key in it is understanding exactly what stakeholder management was, and that's where I sort of uh, asserted my time into uh, was was to understand exactly the key elements of the stakeholders and and who they are and 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 building those relationships and making sure that they felt comfortable with it and we were comfortable with it and we we're all getting what we needed from the from the product. So that was probably the thing that I brought to it that was outside of being a race director, a uh, sports director, and a cyclist. Um, understanding there the I probably think the biggest thing for me in Australia not so much for Europe where I worked as a, a race director as well on events was the OHS and workforce mm-hmm. the, you know what the requirements were here in Australia the police fees how astronomical they are compared to Europe where they the police do it for nothing um, or minimal so that was probably my biggest uh, not learning curve but just uh, awakening to what wow okay uh, this is australia welcome <laughs> cost a lot of money to to run a bike race here what what cost are we looking at well look, for example um just a simple off the bat one like grafton real of course was a, one of the first races i became race director of um was to do a one-day race like that which is pretty much in the middle of nowhere not on a main we cross a main road like the the guada highway there uh new england highway sorry and it's going to cost thirty grand on a yeah you know, on a Saturday, so that's astronomical yeah. amount of money. But I totally get why. But yeah, it's user pays. Um, but yeah, you you start off with thirty grand and take that out of the nomination fees. There's nothing left over. Yeah. <laughs> you know, by the time you you know you're sending people and all volunteers, you've got to go two hundred fifty well, practically two hundred fifty k's from Inverell across there. Grafton Inverell. Um, did help in a little way, but the percentage that Grafton actually contributed to the event was probably 10% of the uh, of the whole budget. It's a little bit better now, um, but yeah, you know, a lot of the infrastructure and everything else all had to be purchased by the club, the prize money, uh, the sponsors. So we just set about you know creating a, a committee there. My brother was leading that and a couple of my good mates, and we just set it up a professional structure within the club. Uh, hence, we were just talking about a bit earlier offline that once they had that framework and understand it, started locking in sponsors for not for one year but three years and, and mm. creating those partnerships and so that everybody was able to get some return on, even though they're small investments from, from a lot of them local uh, uh, business houses, they actually got something out of it and could, um, were very happy. So, yeah, the police cost there was pretty massive and then once you go to the next level and you come into shutting down towns etc you know whether it's melbourne the warner ball or tour of tassie and stuff and you start getting traffic controllers and uh etc standing on the roads for any block amount of time then they've got a minimum minimum time amount that they get paid for and might be half an hour but you're paying for four hours so hmm. you know that sort of thing where you have to take into into account Com- compare compared to in europe where town cities governments are paying for 
or vying for these kind of costs? Yeah, look, um, whether it's a Kermes race in Belgium where they're, they're pretty happy that it's local, they're investing back into it and they've got local club and, and they see it more as a Kermes party type atmosphere uh, where there's minimal cost, but yeah, they're prepared to, to face those costs. Um, wear them to, to like Tour of Flanders where you've got the towns vying and lining up to, to get the Tour of Flanders to pass through their city. Um, and that's why people understand a little bit why the courses do change. Um, we don't just have a one-day race set on that course and it, it's like that. We need to have partnerships with each of those different uh, councils that we go through and different, of those, different ones of those cities, so mm. different cities. So um, that's a bit of a luxury for Tour of Flanders, but not so for the bit smaller races. The Cadell Evans Gratian Road Race, can you remember the first time you heard that idea floated around? Pre its first uh, edition? Yeah, look, it was sort of, like I just mentioned before, I had aspirations of, of getting it and I still got that in my mind, my model of a, of a one-day classics uh, concept. Plural. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I threw that S on the back of that. Um, yeah, it is plural. Um, but, yeah, of course, um, uh, off the success of Cadell's and that, that it's uh, definitely warranted to, to be able to capitalise and leave a legacy of what he's been able to achieve for Australian cycling. It's huge. Um, we haven't had a cyclist before him uh, and it's going to be a little while since we have one who can achieve what he's done today. And for Visit Victoria, and at that time it was Visit uh, um, Victoria Major Events Company, to get behind and see this, uh, that was fantastic. And that was a lot of that, or you know, the idea come from uh, Jason Backer of Signature Sports who, who manages riders and was managing Cadell at the time. Um, it was his conversation with uh, Brendan McClemens at that, at that point in, uh, in Paris actually. Uh, just happened to see him. The year Cadell won. Yeah, he just sort of said to him, said, you know, what about setting up something in Cadell's name? Uh, let's let's do something. And that's sort of where it came around. And um, Brendan Clements saw what he was coming from, where he was coming from, and um, thought, yeah, you know what, that's, that's a good idea. And he um, put the wheels in motion and uh, on that level of uh, major events and started setting up a team around it. And then uh, people said, okay, well, who else do we need on this? And that's where my name got thrown in the hat and I was invited down and met uh, met the team out at Geelong. And they said, okay, this is, you know, the broad uh, hit list of where the course should possibly go. Uh, obviously, finishing in around Geelong and hopefully using part of the uh, World Championship circuit would be, would be the, um, you know, creating that legacy from the worlds and, and also, you know, creating a new area of cycling uh, within Victoria and... Yeah, rest is history for the last so five six years. Yeah. So you get this idea or this brief. What what do you do next on on your behalf? Were you designing the course? Were you talking well, to the teams? Were you talking to the UCI? What's yeah? So what first, do you need? Yeah. So when you design a course like this, you, you know, needing to know where where we roughly want to have the course and where the touch points are. So one of those was you know starting obviously in Geelong. Um, Barwon Heads was another big winner. Um, of course, Cadell lives there, so that sort of helped. Uh, then across to Torquay, uh, that's another big one. Um, Great Ocean Road uses much of that, which is probably a little bit more difficult than than, than anything else um, because you can only use so much of Great Ocean Road before you need to be back in Geelong to use the World Championship circuit. So what I did is um, went out there and spent, I think it was about five days, learning every back road of, of this whole with Ballerine Peninsula and Surf Coast Shire area, um, right down to, to Lawn and, and up to the Otways, etc. and um, 
all the different roads in and around uh, Geelong. I mean, a lot of that uh, that had been done already because of the worlds, naturally, and because you have to, you know, we wanted to use those those roads again um, as part of the legacy. Then, yeah, there's little that you could do to to move away from those roads. But you know, little things like using Yarra Street instead of Murrable, moving the finish down to the uh, waterfront instead of having up on a Murrable Road. Um, Different little things like that, and cutting out the cement works area, and and moving the, the you know straight after Minerva climb, heading straight across the Church Street, just to try and create a little bit more uh, urgency to get back to the front again before you got back to Shalambra. Mm. So little things like that I, I tweaked, and um, more or less so looked at all the courses and everything else, and uh, uh, of course then uh, Cadell had a, had a look at it, um, and he was just pretty positive. Yeah, f- sums up. That looks great. So um, that's where we went, and um, yeah, it was fun. It was fun actually when you got a pretty much a blank piece of paper to work off to do a course. Uh, it was enjoyable, and a pretty rare opportunity. Yeah, definitely. I mean, the goals were already set. That that um, you know, Victoria does major events, and they do it bloody well. Um, you know, the history's there, and, and, and you know, the number one city in the world for doing major events. Um, so with that in mind, that pretty much the sky's the limit type thing, um, and it was about becoming world tour. So it had to be on that level year one. That was my goal. Oh, that's what I worked towards, was designing a course and, and helping in, in the whole event company uh, to have an event that was world tour in year one as a 1.1, and we achieved that in year one. Um, look. Victorian Major Events, which is now Visit Victoria. Uh, there's a few people who worked on that first year who are still, still here today after six years, seven years. Um, and, yeah, that was, it, was, it was important to, to know where that was and, and uh, in the planning and the strategy. Um, look, I'm only one of, of quite a few people involved in it. There's been some people who moved in and out, but, uh, yeah, it's a big gig, a big gig. There's a lot of manpower, a lot of hours gone into uh, making this a realisation and and achieving, first of all, men's world tour uh, in three years, and then uh, within five years, or hopefully, it was five-year plan, six years to become uh, have a women's world tour race. And that that was the plan from the get-go. Yep. Yep. Was was there long between that initial thought, that initial kind of meeting where you first talked to Visit Victoria and Jason about this event, that before it was like, all right, this is actually happening. This is this is this is on. Well, first, I mean. Doing the recce's and recon and all the areas and the streets of the course, and then what it is, I come back with a lot of different options of course designs. Uh, I think in the end of it, I, I narrowed it down to three, and then I just give my view on each one, the pluses and the minuses. And then as a group at Victoria Major Events uh, Company, then uh, led by Brendan McClements, who ironically is back at now CEO the of bus. Visit Victoria, yeah. So it was really lovely to see Brendan back. He's, he's got a very uh, very good uh, knowledge of cycling, so that's a big plus point for cycling in, in Victoria and in Australia, I believe. So, yeah, having uh, at that time with Brendan and, and walking through different things and, uh, and Trudy Limblade, who was then uh, there at that point, and, and, and of course, uh, Jason, who's just been you know, a big driver, particularly being from Geelong, he was able to help a hell of a lot with uh, the local people getting them on board. So... Um, uh, and Jason's vast knowledge of, of working with uh, with high-end sport, world sport, with his own background in, in uh, being a sportsman. So it was a great team that we had and uh, still is. Um, there's a few newcomers into it. Um, one of those members is Cathy Ebert, who will be going 
leaving us for a little while. But you know, having these key people uh, in the sport uh, and around the sport have got years of knowledge of cycling. Like Cathy comes uh, from working with the Herald Sun Tour, um, another Victorian event. It's been so, yeah. And then um, getting to the stage where you can present it to them and uh, yeah, saying, yep, this is the one we're going to back. And, um, and we took off. I mean, even Towards Zero Torquay, while I was doing all this, I actually designed the course of Towards Zero Torquay um, six years ago, seven years ago. So it's just been sitting there waiting for the right time to uh, be brought into the fold. So why did, it, why did that end up in Melbourne to start off with? Um, that was an interim, always going to be. Um, there's also uh, budget around it, but also for Torquay to, to be ready for it. Um, they're relatively, they're big shire, uh, uh, but the town itself had to be ready for it. There were some infrastructure changes which needed, so there was obviously funding which they needed to make those infrastructures changes. So it's sort of more or less all funneled into a year where that could all happen. And it had to happen in the year previous, prior to the to the event year, um, and it did. And mate, what a what a year it was! Um, yeah, for the inaugural towards zero Torquay, uh, we've just had nothing but positive feedback. It's been fantastic, and even for a lot of people who didn't know what uh, was happening around them, they've they've totally got it. They're just like, yep, can't wait for twenty uh, twenty one now. So that's that's very warm. That's probably my biggest takeaway that with the women's world success of the women's world tour race, and my two big uh, two big smiley points. Yeah. So back to the first edition of Cadell's race. Yep. How did it go versus the the? Because I imagine you can plan all, as much as you want, but the real the reality is, on it's an event. There's people everywhere. There's so many different moving parts. How did it go compared to what you were expecting? Um, I think there's a, a couple of little points which I was a little bit concerned about. Uh, one was the finishing circuit. Uh, it was heavy, so I was a little bit concerned about that. Being 1.1, we had uh, 11 world tour teams in year one so i was a little bit concerned about the depth and breadth of it and how they would attack it um they didn't know it and then on sunday morning when we opened the curtains and rain was <laughs> coming in sideways against the windows it's like wow it's not ideal for the first year particularly for uh, crowds etc but we actually did really well and and i think the the booster that i had out of that the big takeaway was if we can run a, an event in year one so successfully under those conditions, we're going to be okay. And the whole team uh, agreed. We had a good debrief afterwards and said, we're in a pretty good place. This, is, this has got legs. So, um, yeah, it was, it was good to get the year one behind, behind us, that's for sure. I guess the next ma- major milestone in Myers is going to see so celebrated Cadell's final race. Yeah. And then the next step being, how do we get this to the world tour? classification both on the men's and women's side what, mm. what do you need to do to get that well yeah right actually having year one because Cadell was still so fresh at that time I mean that's already six years ago and only four years after him winning Tour de France and the Cadell effect as well just of him still being there and, and racing it as his last race that was, was pretty huge so yeah it was this okay will there be a vacuum in year two uh, how do we we move on with UCI uh, getting it, achieving our sanctions so we started at 1.1 year one uh, Hort category uh, for year two which is now the Pro Series yeah. renamed and then year three to be World Tour so yeah we had boxes we had to tick so we had the UCI there looking at what we were doing uh, etc so um, yeah just 
doing all what, the work. What, what do they want? What, what do you need? Um, well, they just look at all, all areas, um, you know, from, from the marketing coming into it, uh, broadcast, um, uh, safety, uh, technical, all the technical aspects that, that UCI are in control of, um, right through to the quality of the riders and the teams that are participating, uh, crowds, um, circuit, um, you know, design, etc. Um, and generally, the takeaway of, yes, how do you classify that as, a, as an event success? And um, we were able to do it, you know, like not just having broadcast, but having really great uh, views and uh, our social media was, was fantastic and all the other bits and pieces that went along. So we just continued that growth curve uh, all the way. And then also having our, our um, people's ride yeah. um, is, is also in, uh, very, very important because we're giving something back to the public's engagement and then creating that... Um, that piece to, to development. So by having uh, national teams participating, we're, we're having also that development, particularly in years one and two, where we were able to have NRS teams and Conti teams participate. Uh, but as we grow into World Tour, obviously UCI realises that they can't participate anymore. But, um, you know, we have got our, had our, not only did we have the first women's World Tour race this year, but we had our first women's continental team racing, which is Rock Salt. So that was, that was pretty cool to have mm. them on board and, and we've seen so many of the, uh, the young uh, men and women from the national teams who've participated in these events then go on to, to race with professional teams. So I think we f- feel very proud, and I know Cadell does, and, and everybody at Visit Victoria are very proud of, um, uh, of these sorts of little legacies that we're creating and, uh, within, within our races. The, is there a difference between getting the men's race to the World Tour and the women's? Um, yeah, look, the, the men's was already primed. Uh, uh, men's is, I mean, the men's circuit and the men's teams. Uh, the women's uh, teams weren't quite ready there. Um, that was also budgetary-wise and also the depth in within the teams where you only had a few teams that were really on that level to become World Tour. Now, uh, this was the first year for 2020, you had eight teams. We had six of the eight teams. And the reason is the other two actually weren't quite ready to be able to come out here due to cost, but also uh, technically. They just couldn't get their bikes and, and material on time because mm. they you know, needed to leave the beginning of January. And unfortunately, the priority was going to the men's teams who are doing double programs. They're in, they're in South America, they're here. Uh, so it sort of drew some of the resources away, some of these sponsors. Um, uh, so, yeah, we look at having all contingents or, you know, all of those teams from the, within the Women's World Tour next year competing in our race. Um, and that's going to grow as well and develop. The women's, uh, talk about, you know, uh, steep learning curves. Well, this is a steep growth curve for women's uh, cycling and, and World Tour. It's just like this at the moment. Um, you know, they've got uh, minimum salaries. Um, they've got a lot bigger budgets. They've got uh, a set-out World Tour program now, which have really been uh, fantastic for the growth of sport. And uh, the depth of the fields, as, as we've seen in the weekend, uh, the girls are really racing very well. And uh, some of the most exciting racing I've seen in 2019 were, were watching women's racing. So the women's race on Saturday. Again, you opened up your curtain window in the morning went, oh, dear. <laughs> After it was... 40-something degrees on Friday, it was uh, not so ideal on the Saturday morning. It well, especially when I was driving down to Geelong at about 10 o'clock in the morning and there was sideways rain on the highway. Yeah, look, it was, um, we had a big, uh, big hit there for both on, on Thursday for the women's race because they started at 12 o'clock in the heat of the day yeah. and they raced like Trojans. So, I mean, yeah, um, 
but that was a concern. Um, it always is. Um, but they handled it so well. And that's where I, was, I really feel the, the depth and the professionalism of the women's uh, peloton has so, grown so much. They just went out there like the men and raced hard and it was exciting. And, uh, and uh, you know, we've seen the results. So it was a great win by Brody Chapman. Um, but yeah, the concerns around it then. That was on Thursday in the heat. Yeah, but we and knew that got, was coming. Then and then it got real wet on Saturday. Yeah, well, we sort of had a double-edged sword there too because we, we had the, the Swiss people's ride in the morning, yeah. which had to be shortened. And then there was, I was already talking with the uh, commissaires about, oh, we may have to uh, push this back because at one point I was saying the thunderstorms were going to hit right at start time. And the last thing we want to do is actually have a thunderstorm just hitting us literally on the line while everybody's all in one place, and particularly if there's any, going to be any uh, lightning involved. So that um, that front actually uh, started being later in the day, and we were able to get the start off done um, pretty much in the dry, and it was only about halfway through the race that the rain started coming down, and, and boy, did it come down. <laughs> so um, mm. it, it, it's probably for me, I was more comfortable with it than a lot of others, being an athlete uh, and a cyclist, you're used to doing that sort of thing. and Being in the car? being Yeah, being as a sports director, <laughs> dealing with it. But, uh, look, I'd been to races where we literally on the line and it was snowing, started snowing, and then had to stand for another half an hour while they said, oh, we're not going over that mountain anymore. So I've had to do it with as a rider, deal with it as a sports director, so now dealing with it as a race director, um, I was able to take it in my stride. I had some... Uh, we had uh, great people on the ground there that could uh, manage this, um, working with the, you know, all the uh, services um, uh, that was necessary to get that done. And, um, yeah, Viz Victoria just had you know, everything they needed at their fingertips to make sure we were making the right call and, and how to move forward. So apart from we could control everything except for the riders yeah. at that point, and unfortunately it was a bit of a touch of wheels and we had a bit of a tumble from the girls. The race itself, uh, World Tour status, how did you see that affect how the race unfolded? Um, it was a positive. You I mean, had the best seat in the house. Yeah, look, seeing it from where it was, uh, you always knew that once we become World Tour, the, the depth and breadth of the teams was going to be there. And that's what I mentioned just before, that, that the teams have actually become so more experienced. I mean, our winner's 22. Yeah. That's pretty young, but... She is so mature. You heard her doing the commentary with Matt Keenan and Phil Liggett on Sunday. The maturity from her was, was amazing and the way she presented herself, but also in the way they conduct themselves during the race and before the race. Um, and that's really pleasing to see because the women's pro level is still quite young. Even though we've had some fantastic, great riders from in women's cycling, you know, from Cass Shannon and Kathy Watt and, uh, and Noni Wood and uh, um, Sarah Carrigan, they've all been Olympic champions, world champions and so forth. It's just now really spread right across the board here within the pro peloton and um, they, they're, they're ready to race. It's, they really are well uh, ready and deserving of, of having a world tour uh, calendar and a solid uh, calendar and the race itself is benefiting from it because when you start getting all those teams there, they're racing full gas and, and the, they're able to do that because the, the, the depth and breadth of the teams is, is providing that platform for them to, to you know, provide, you know, the race itself just becomes very exciting. Yeah. And the way it unfolded, similar to the way it's unfolded in previous years, actually, mm. did you think 
that was it when she went on that final final lap? Um, yeah, I mean, also with the rain like that, it was the, it's always, uh, I find in, in conditions, if you are strong, you just got to get out there early because it's really hard to control it from behind in these sorts of conditions. And particularly with the, with the crash there at 18Ks to go, um, you know, like uh, Amanda Spratt, she lost some teammates. Uh, Chloe uh, Hoskin lost some teammates. So then they were actually on the back foot um, because they didn't have their teammates to be able to help them. So they had to you know, do all the, all the legwork themselves, but still get over Shalambra and been able to control it for the finish. So um, that put Lippert in, in, in the driver's seat a little bit and mate, she took the bull by the horns and, and got herself out there and it left the, all the other big guns looking at one another. Okay, who's going to do all the work? And uh, uh, But she was so strong. Um, so yeah, it was, it, was, it was good to see. It was really good to see the team tactics. And that's what I think, uh, once again, the depth and breadth through the peloton is allowing these team tactics um, to evolve similar to what it does with the men's race. Which was a similar outcome for the men's race heading into the last lap. Funnily enough, we had the team dynamic again playing a role. Mm. But we also had a lot of wind at the start. For the it men's race, good. yeah, yeah. It was look. good. I think... <laughs> Once again, to come back to the design of the course, is, is not making it just one. It's not a race for the sprinters. It's not a race for the climbers. And this has been reiterated in interviews with the, uh, with the riders, is that you just never know how it's going to turn out. And both on a Saturday and Sunday were different weather conditions in different scenarios. Um, and we had sort of similar type, uh, type finishes, you know. Uh, men's probably a little bit different again, but, you know, like for two years running, we had sprinters coming in. Mm. And now all of a sudden we had, a, you know, the, uh, one of the workers for a sprinters team getting up and uh, one of the, the biggest motors in the sport was Sivakov, you know, like, and Ineos just, yeah, they were, they were just out to smash it. They, were, they weren't prepared to sit in the peloton, Ineos, and it was great to see. And uh, you turn, I turned on the TV and there was two groups that under an hour inside the, from the gun and it was on literally from the get-go, yeah, well, that was pretty amazing. I mean, first of all, it was really cool. Uh, I say the Australian boys, the Australian national team, just three of them straight off the front, bang, within five Ks, we had three Australians in front with 30 seconds. Mm. That was pretty cool. And that more or less set the tone for the rest of the race. It's like um, uh, they went out there and said, well, we're just going to, you know, we don't have much of a chance, we don't have a sprinter. So went after it. And then um, Tim Inyo said, well, that's the carrot, we're going after it. And mm. they did. Mate, they were doing 70 Ks an hour on the... They picked up a bit of a tailwind coming towards Bowen Heads and the Peloton are doing 70 k's an hour. You just like going, okay, what else is going to happen yeah. today? <laughs> so if you get in the car at the start of the day. What's next? What do you do after that? Um, as a race trick, hopefully nothing. I mean, if the day goes perfectly, you don't have anything to do. But if it doesn't, um, then you have a lot to do. Um, and that's managing the conditions live what's happening and that's more so why i'm out there is is what happened on saturday mm. so you can see and feel what's what's going on and uh, you're directly communicating face to face with commissaires with your race regulator uh, with your other drivers and then see how it is with the riders um it's, you can't judge that from from in an event control center or from what just watching on tv back in a in a studio uh you need to be there and feel it um so yeah, like I say, ideal scenario, I always say that to everybody. People say, what do you do? I said, hopefully nothing. I'm just standing around, just watching, uh, communicating with everybody and just getting thumbs up all the time, you know, getting okays. Um, 
but that's the whole thing about having a uh, a very good organisation and uh, an events team is that uh, you know if there is something happens, you're spotting fires and, and you're rectifying it straight away, um, which you know with experience too that helps us a hell of a lot. Um, so. So when, for example, we had the unfortunate women's crash on Saturday, what do you do then? Well, just as quick as possible ascertain exactly what the f- uh, what has happened um the emergency teams go into into action um knowing exactly where all the people are within the race itself so you know where our commissaires are where the race regulators are where our commissaires to make sure that we've got you know feet on the ground at the, at the situation and uh we did that um uh, our race regulator pete mcmahon was straight away went in took control of everything uh, managed all the vehicles of the teams to get them uh, safely around the riders and then the emergencies team um, you know, went into play and uh, our ECC, Event Control Centre, they were on it straight away. They did already dispatched uh, uh, extra ambulances. Uh, we had extra police coming in and the situation was just contained straight away, which then uh, having our, uh, our extra medical staff, we were able to continue the race safely and, um, and still have a, have a great race with a great uh, result. Mm. So it's... The identity of the race, it kind of... Like you talked about, there's so many different ways that it can potentially unfold from the two bunch kicks we've had previously to the small groups going to the finish. How does that fit in terms of the longer objective of the race and where how to turn it into the, the one-day classic? The, the spring classics are just on the horizon. They're about to kick off. How does it get to that level? I think we've pretty much established ourselves now, to be honest. Um, I think this is more so the, being in the sixth year, so the uh, the fourth year of, of being World Tour. Um, teams recognise our place in the World Tour and particularly in the Classics. So we're the first one-day Classic uh, of the season um, with Omelette Pet Newsblood, which is my next event, um, is the opening one-day Classic of Europe. Um, so, yeah, it's... Um, Quite, quite right that I'm a race director for both those, but it's really nice. And the, the, you see the teams. I mean, look at all the, all the classics riders and sprinters being here. And the sprinters don't get too much showing in the one-day classics. So to have a classic here where they have an opportunity or they may not. I mean, we've seen Caleb Ewan there. Like, how strong was he? So it's only just missed that 1%. Yeah which would have possibly been an opportunity for him. Maybe he didn't. Maybe he was there just competing for third place with Daryl Limpy. But maybe the race scenario is a little bit different than you caught Jay Stavenitz. So that unpredictability of how the race is going to go, and a lot of that is like, as you alluded to before, is wind conditions and weather conditions can be the, the deciding factor. Talk to me about the Australian summer in general. So the bigger picture. Bigger picture. So we've got Road Nationals tour down under Cadell's race. Are you mm. happy with how that all fits together? Would you like to see something different? Is it... A good. What are the Euro, um, the the pros, the Euros or slash Australians now? Yeah. Um, think about it. Um, I, I, Euros, uh, European riders, and then the Aussie uh, guys competing overseas, like the Aussie pros, um, they love it. Uh, I think uh, for the Euro pros, they love being out here. Like um, Francais Azur was their first time across here in Victoria, and they said we'll be back. Um, we had three French teams here, which French don't normally like to travel too much outside of France. Uh, they all love that they, you know, uh, they love being in Victoria. And this part of the year, this 
block of real estate for Cycling Australia is is about the only opportunity of getting these uh, level of, of riders and teams out here. And, and that's purely because of... Um, the year is so big, uh, so many races. The World Tour is really uh, established in both men's and women's now. Uh, so there's not too many other opportunities to get teams and riders here. And yeah, just we're just defeated purely by the distance. Uh, uh, you know, 24 hours on a plane is not ideal for the form. Uh, and then another 24 hours back. So, yeah, that that's pretty much makes it the, is the deciding factor of being able to get teams here or, or running more events here in Australia. Mm. But the so, summer's great. I mean, same thing. You, you can't have the national championships uh, any other time of the year if you want to have the uh, Euro uh, Aussie pros competing. Um, but we did see a bit of a decline this year. There's some of them actually are starting to not be at the Aussie national championships. So I think Cycling Australia have got to have a rethink about their national championships and, and how they're going to be able to attract... Uh, attract those bigger or other extra pros who, who are starting to not all compete at the the uh, national championships i think michelin scott's stranglehold at the nationals mm. is getting a little bit boring for some so they go well you know i don't want to go there and race for second or or not even <laughs> not even get on the podium anymore so they're opting to to just go straight to two and under and then across to our races what would you do if you're at ca Ooh, good question um I'll be having alternating the uh, road courses. You think that's the... I said it some years to do to CA. I said it's okay to be running in Bunningyong, but only every second year. You should be having another location that you can run a, a national championships. So my, my thoughts on it would be you run Bunningyong uh, as is, then with a flat time trial or flattish, and then the next year you'd run a flatter or less uh, climbing uh, potentially, and then or more climbing uh, with a different type of time trial course, so that way you can uh, uh, suit more of our riders, and that way you can, um, you know, at least attract the, the best that Australia's got um, at least every second year, if not every year. Then mm. you mentioned for Umup is next for you on the calendar. How did the Flanders Classics gig come about? Um. Probably more through friendship in the beginning. Um, and for those that don't know, Flanders Classic oh yeah. owns which races? Flanders Classics consist of the Omloop right yeah. at Newsblood, uh, which is always the uh, last weekend of February or the first weekend of March, depending on how the calendar year sits. Uh, then there's Ghent Wervelgem. Um, then we've got uh, in Flemish, it's uh, uh, the... Um, oh <laughs> Here we go. Dwarsdorf Vlaanderen. Yeah. And then we've got uh, Tour of Flanders, of course, the Rom van Vlaanderen. And then we have uh, the Skelder Prize, um, the Skelder Prize. And then the last one is Brabant Sapel, um, just uh, to the east of, of uh, Brussels. The big one, though, in the middle there, Tour of Flanders, as most of the Australian would, listeners would know it by. Yeah. How long have you been doing this event for now? Uh, this is my second year uh, full-time on these. So I was sort of dabbling uh, three years ago. Um, my connection with it was with the owner, uh, Walter van der Halter, uh, when he first came up with this concept of bringing Flanders Classics in and changing the Tour of Flanders and, and making a more marketable commercial product um, to help grow the sport, uh, not just in Belgium but internationally. And, um, yeah, sort of started there and 
you know, a few dinners and a few wines and about his ideas and and that which uh, you know he's just turned into uh, to what it is today uh, a whole bunch of one day races which are just amazing how big is the tour of flanders compared to everything else 85,000 people at the start in antwerpen 75,000 plus at the finish spread over a wide area uh, of the Quaramont and Puttersburg and the, and the Koppenberg and then one million people in between. It's unbelievable. It's crazy. That's hectic. Yeah. I mean, most of us have all been to some sort of concert of some sort and when you see the riders ride up the yellow carpet of a kilometre long up onto the podium and they're welcomed by, you know, 75,000, 85,000 people in the centre of Antwerp and one of the biggest and oldest cities of the world diamond capital of the world it's just, it's just yeah mate this concert stuff this rock rock concert stuff and then be at the finish you know I'm fortunate enough to be invited up to uh, uh, onto the podium for the winners uh, and podium place getters and it was like 45 50,000 people standing in front of me I just go wow yeah <laughs> how cool is this for these riders you know they, they are really being recognised uh, for what they're worth and you know as great stars they are and entertainers how nervous were you for your first one as the race director oh to be honest very concentrated i actually wasn't nervous um mainly because i had a faith in in everybody around me i mean the team in flanders classics they've been doing it for so many years and uh wim van herweger who uh, has been race director before of omelop at newsblood and, and the tour of flanders he's been doing that for 25 years so uh, he was my driver, um, he was driving it, so we were able to constantly converse about all situations throughout the race. Mind you, I've done about 20 recons of the circuit, I've been out on the motorbikes with all of our race regulators and our race security guys and all that stuff, so I pretty much knew the, the course like the back of my hand, and it was my old stomping ground as a rider. So, But yeah, just had absolute confidence in the whole team and um, that everything was going to be successful, and, and it was. Um, although we did have some, some little things to deal with curveballs um, like we did in uh, Dwarsdorf Vlaanderen for the women's race which yeah that was a what bit of a curveball oh we had a, a few incidents in the women's race which then um, caused them to be late and then the ECC uh, they were failing to to notify the ECC the event control centre so by the time that I've become aware of it we were 500 metres away from <laughs> from seeing it right happening in Folders and where they were crossing our our path as we were coming the last 70 kilometres of it and we were steaming in to the uh, to the Kloersberg and at 70 k's an hour with uh, Van der Poel and Van Aert and all these other guys ready to women, race. So the women's race runs in conjunction? So it starts on the same day and they actually were just where they joined onto the course and they did about 10 kilometres of the men's course before heading back to the finish and because they had these incidents, one of them was a crash 500 metres after start and they did a restart which then impacted all the timings and someone forgot to notify us or deviate themselves off the course or just stop their race so it didn't come onto the men's one. I mean at this point the women's race keeping in mind it was 1.1 whereas the men's is a world tour so it had priority over over the women's race and um so it was pretty hard to stop this charging <laughs> field of riders and you waving your red flag. Um, do you think there's merit in having them on the same day? It works in Europe um, better, and that probably brings us back to what we do at uh, the Cadell Evans Grocery Road Race. 
um, where there it was from the beginning in the planning with uh, Victorian Major Events Company was that the women would have their own day. They had their own time in the sunlight, in the sunshine, and that was going to be on a Saturday. So that was always going to be about the women's uh, women's race and Swiss people's ride in the morning. But um, we wanted that. Um, whereas in Europe, they find it a little bit more difficult to run run two races apart. Um, and it actually works quite well. The women really uh, like being there because it creates all the crowd. They're really uh, getting the crowds coming from the women's race to see the men's race, but also vice versa. So it does work well in Europe. And from a consumer, you get to see two races in one. Oh, yeah. yeah. And that's the whole idea is that we do, do run the women's race over the same circuit and the same climbs. Not everywhere, but, um, of course, they don't ride the same uh, amount of kilometres. Like to women to do 250Ks, I think that's a big ask. Mm. Um but um, they do do the, the major part of the men's race. Uh, they do ride and it works very well and um, with great success. And we always have the women's presentation uh, with the men. So they stand up on the podium with the men. So that's great. How, uh, how does Kettle's race get to the size of Flanders? I don't think that's going to quite happen. Without another I'll 100 never... years. No, look, I think in the next 10 years... Or how does it have its own take on that? It will happen. Um, it will happen. I think uh, the culture's not quite there like Flanders. I mean, the sport is so big in Europe. But also, keep in mind, it's only three hours to Paris from Brussels, three hours to Amsterdam from Brussels, three hours to Frankfurt from Brussels, and only five hours drive across to, uh, to uh, London. So, I mean... The proximity helps a lot, and there's a lot of people in between in those three hours. So yeah. it does make it a lot more uh, accessible compared to to uh, Geelong and Victoria, uh, for, for even just for Australians, let alone internationals. But we will get there. I, I think I see the Cadell Evans Gresham Road Race just growing, uh, and that whole week just growing, um, and that's in part of the planning of um, from Visit Victoria uh, going forward. The sport itself, as a whole. How do you see that going? Um, I think that cycling now on the grassroots needs, uh, in Australia needs attention, uh, particularly towards our junior girls and junior boys, men. We, we need to really uh, pay attention to that, the grassroots. But also for the clubs. We need to, we need to be giving our, our clubs in Australia um, more guidelines, uh, more information on, on looking after their riders and, and more about the actual club racing. What I've seen here is the, the clubs in the country areas um, are disappearing or have disappeared. Where years ago, a lot of the big talent uh, was born and bred in, in the country areas and then moved to the city to, that, to achieve that higher performance by getting more racing and having opportunities to work with, uh, with coaches, etc. Um, Which is where a lot of the pros that we see now are from, the Lucas Hamilton and Jack Haig. Yep. Your um, nephew, Dylan. Yeah, Dylan, uh, the boys, you know, Richie Ports and so forth, Tassie, you yeah. know, they're all, they're all coming from big country uh, centres, but not, not cities. Um, and, yeah, I think we need to – there's a lot of work to be done there from each of the states in conjunction with Cycling Australia. And um, I think as that grows, then we get a, a better uh, and more established national road series for, for women and men. Um during our summers, then, then that's going to grow uh, the possibilities of more them uh, being more on the world stage and uh, and racing in Europe and internationally. Uh, I think the public, um, you know, I think we we unfortunately got this whole thing about cyclist and motorist. Um, 
so I think that once that can be dealt with, it will help a hell of a lot. Uh, and that's just you know the, the relationship there that needs some work on. Um, and yeah, I think the sport will just continue to grow. Uh, we're seeing now with the environment changes the the necessity to to be more uh, more riding bikes and 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 you know whether you're walking or, or riding bikes to 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 do your part in it. And I think from that then people might start realising yeah. Uh, what these cyclists actually do by riding a bike themselves. What about the elite level? To the world tour. Mm-hmm. The sport's always thrived off this massive event in the middle and then struggled because of the disjoint nature between everything else that comes with it. Um, Is it growing still? Is it... I think in, in, in world cycling, the, the teams are definitely there. Like uh, the difference, and we've seen that this year, with how Jumbo Visma was able to take it to Ineos. Even though they still got first and second, it was the gaps were not near as big as what they have been, the, the pure dominance of it. Um, I think the gap is getting smaller across world cycling um, without putting any salary caps or anything like that. I think the, the countries are getting stronger at top end. I mean, we're seeing riders from, from all parts of Eastern Europe now we're seeing teams from the Middle East being sponsored, attracting money from there. We've got our Australian team um, being backed by Jerry Ryan and uh, for many years already. Uh, you know, we've got Rock Salt who's come out with their first women's uh, Conti team, which is just fantastic. Uh, we've already got Michelin Scott, uh, also backed by Jerry and women's teams. And we, we've had, you know, teams like Bridge Lane, uh, you know, been knocking on the door doing international races. Uh, we've had um, um, a couple of other teams there, uh, you know, you know, the EF education there, we've had Drapak for many years there uh, doing stuff. So I think from the world top, it's just getting, um, it's just getting bigger, to be honest. I think uh, UCI's got a, uh, quite a big job ahead of them to, to plan the future uh, correctly for this where, and direct it, uh, steer it in the right direction, to be honest. Do you see it? getting towards a more sustainable financial path? Um, do they have the means to do it? I think the means is there, but it's uh, having the agreement to do it. Yeah. Uh, so it's you, a, it's you, a hard call, to be honest. Look, the teams have got to be uh, self-sufficient. They can't look too much at organisers to be able to help them in that way. But I do think the model needs a few tweaks. I mean, you're looking at the Tour de France. They're making a profit, I think, somewhere around 80 to 100 million a year from Tour de France. So even if they were to then keep half and then, you know, to then share half of the revenue with teams, and by the time you spread that across 20 world teams, that's not, not a lot money. of money. No. It is a lot of money, but it's not a lot of money. So that's not the what, answer. What do you need to run a world tour team? Today, you're not competitive at under 20 million euros. That's 25 million Australian dollars, 26 million Australian dollars a year. That's a conservative team. Yeah. The top teams are working uh, in a vicinity of 35 million euros. So $40 million. So, what? yeah. What is so? What does your boss of the Flanders Group think? What what 
Does he think it's all gone great? Does he love it? Does he want to grow? Does he... He's brought all these races together, which seems to be going really well, at least from the outside. What does he want? Well, first, his philosophy is all, always about um, doing the best for everybody. And then we share a similar vision on that. Uh, it's the same as what we have for, for Goodell's race, is, is that if you don't have all your stakeholders or your partners in this, this case, which is riders and teams um, and, and with organisers, working together, then, then you're never going to, to have sustainability, you're never going to be able to grow. Um, and also the whole messaging around it, you want people to enjoy it, you want people to be positive about cycling, uh, you want them to, to go away saying, yeah, that was worthwhile going to, I want to come back again. And that's with also your VIPs, that it wasn't just another... Uh, another thing that you've got invited along you say no I want to actually pay to go and see that I want to to have that so it's important to him it's important to keep growing the sport it's important to look at new ways and been able to do that and and turn some stones to see if there's any other ways that we can um, uh, change or, or improve on um, there is definitely partnerships to be had with teams it's just very difficult to get everybody around the table to, to define what that looks like. And that's the biggest struggle we have at the moment. Mm. Um, we, were, we run our events. When I saw we, I mean everybody in cycling, run our events on public open roads. Um, we go run in all sorts of conditions. We've got no guarantees. We've got no roof that we can pull over. We don't have any, any tarps to pull over the pitch in case it rains. Uh, uh, there's no seats where you can see everything. <laughs> yeah, there's very little. You, you, not charging. Not only people get charged to watch the race of the VIPs, but yeah, they get the whole experience of VIP. You get receive. Um, so yeah, it's it's purely about uh, free-to-air television. Um, in some cases, it's pay TV, but yeah, it's and that's what we do. We we reach the masses. Um, so yeah, the messaging is key in this um, from the team so they get what their rewards are uh, and that's what at the end of the day the sponsors pay 35 million to see their riders get onto television and that's the ROI on it return on investment is just to be on the cameras and mm. win the race so that you get more time in the cameras and get, get on the front page of the paper yeah who owns Roubaix who won Roubaix who owns it uh, who owns that's a well the club actually still owns it but they put out the management and organisation of the race to uh, ASO. So ASO um, runs races on behalf of other owners, race owners. How does that relationship work with the Flanders group? Um, my boss, the owner of Flanders Classics, uh, Walter van der Halter, he has a good relationship at ASO, but which can sometimes a bit uh, a bit tricky uh, they they are the dominant force within cycling uh, and second you would have RCS which is the Giro all the uh, RCS races with the Tour of Italy and Turin Adriatico Milan San Remo Lombardia and all that sort of thing um, from the Italian side and then there's Flanders Classics um, and the ASO really is it's cycling in a sense because they're mm. they're the ones that get in everyone's living room in July. Yeah, look, I've said it a lot and a lot of other people said it, you know, this could very well kind of be Nigeria. If the Giro Tour of Italy was in July, then, it, you know, the shoe was on the other foot. But Tour de France is the one that's in July and that's the one, like you say, everybody watches. And uh, uh, 
so yeah they they're the big ones they're yeah. definitely the big ones um uh, i mean you can't see to see what they are able to achieve as a country not just a race organization um they just embrace it it's just huge mm. it's melbourne cup for three weeks yeah what's uh what's next for you um i've got a f- few days more here in uh in melbourne um a lot of debriefs um then starting on the planning already for 21 we've already started planning uh six months ago what 21 will look like and uh well 22 even uh where the event we would like the event to go to um visit victoria um and now uh, getting a few more things locked in and won't be sure soon and we start looking at uh, 23 24 25 as we go into the new uh new round of uh, sanctioning for world tour for both men's and women so um it never stops um so i'll be doing that this week um focus firstly with the wash up from uh 2020 skid road race uh, week and then um with a quick touch on our planning and the big points of what we need to do uh, immediately and then our time plan for the rest of the year for mm. 2021 and what that might look like and the 10 years of anniversary of Cadell Evans winning Tour de France which brought this whole race around and made it made it possible so uh, some exciting things there's a little bit of a teaser for you <laughs> from this year finish things up um, the best thing that happened and the thing that you need to work on for next year uh, I'll take the, what we need to work on is probably um, diverting rain yeah. <laughs> from the race. Mm-hmm. Although, in one way, that was a, a negative scene. In, in one way, because we did lose uh, we did lose our imaging uh, yeah. on television broadcast. But on the other side, it makes it unique. The photos that we're going to see back, or you've already seen, uh, how the women just you know just took it to to the weather and took the challenge and just took it head on those images are just going to stay part of the chronicles of the cadelvins crescent road race and the first women's world tour race in australia the opening world tour women race so i mean that in its own way becomes very very special and it's going to be recognized soon you see a photo in the rain you're going to know that it was from 2020 and then from the the positive it's probably sitting side by side. The success of the Towards Zero Race Torquay races, both the women's and men's, was huge. It's what I'd hoped for, what I thought was going to happen, and it did happen. So I'm very happy with that. And it makes me very excited for the years to come. And not just for next year, but the future years. That's, a, that's an event that's going to be established itself within Australian cycling. Um, and then the success of the women's race. Under those circumstances, to have such an exciting race, the way those ladies just went out there and battled it out and fought it out and delivered. Yeah, that's put a great taste in my mouth. And then the men's, I mean, I've seen it already for two, three years and it's up to the teams and the riders to do it and they just take the gloves off and have a crack and we've seen it again this year. So let's just underline it with a bigger, thicker stripe that, that we're doing the right thing. So Thanks, Scott. Thank you. Enjoy the opening weekend and uh, all the best for the f- the spring classics we'll be very jealous here as we wander into work on Monday morning dreary eyed after staying up late to watch it on Sunday night Monday morning yeah I might be at the envelope with a bit more than just a polo shirt on though but uh, I'm looking forward to it <laughs> thanks Scott thank you